it was interesting, um, one of the lines in the song, uh, one of the songs we just sang was, I, uh, I got to paraphrase it, that's just because that's it, but I, I know, Aaron, maybe you can help me. The line in Good, Good Father was talking about um, uh, people searching for answers far and wide, and the next line of the song was, they're searching for answers, what? That only God provides, and it's really interesting um, that Pastor Aaron, as they work through that, he picked that song because this morning, that's actually the very reality, the reality of questions is how I want to start our time together. Because I believe, again, it's really interesting that that's how that song came, or that that song came through and we sang that and this reality came out. Because I believe questions shape everything. I believe questions shape everything because as we ask questions, we get answers, and as we get answers, we get information, or maybe we get uh, knowledge that hopefully becomes wisdom, but without asking questions, we're never going to learn anything. Your question may be as simple as, what is this book, not this one, but any book, what does it say? Why should I read it? Why do I need to read it? We're always asking questions as we're growing and as we're moving forward. Questions shape everything. And it makes sense. The definition of a question is that it is a sentence or a statement that is designed to elicit information. So I ask a question in order to gain information. If you're going to know anything, you must ask questions. And I would submit this morning... I believe people share a common interwoven DNA called the image of God that prompts us automatically to ask life's most pressing questions. Questions um, that shape everything about us, that shape why we do what we do, that shape um, who we are, all of these kinds of things. And we're familiar with some of these types of questions, right? Like, what's my purpose in life? Who am I? Why am I here? You know, the, all, all these kinds of things. If you've never asked them, you've probably interacted with somebody who has. And if you've never asked them, I would love to talk to you because I want to know what your secret is. Because I've asked many times, like, what's the point? What, who am I? And what, and what am I doing? And, and why does it matter? Now, when I think about life's most pressing questions, this week I did a Google search. And when I did this Google search... All I did was ask, what are life's most pressing questions? And uh, here are three of the most important questions in life, according to a blog called MindWave. What do I want to experience? How do I want to grow? And what do I want to contribute? I want to be clear and say that I don't think that those questions in and of themselves are bad questions. But I will submit to you that I believe these questions are missing something very foundational and fundamental. And if those are the most important questions in life, what do I want to experience? How do I want to grow? And what do I want to contribute? If those are the most important questions in life, I would submit to you this morning, it is no wonder the world we live in is in the shape that it's in. Because I want you to understand right away, the object of all three of those questions is who? Me. I. Us. The individual. 
every, every reality in those questions says, my life is all about me. So even if you want to detach, which you can't, but even if you want to try to detach the reality of God and the influence and the presence of God in a person's life, even if you wanted to and say you could do that, these questions are very selfish. Forget you. What do I want? What do I want to experience? What do I want to be? What do I want to do? All of these things. So there's, there's something fundamentally missing here. The chief end of all of these questions is self. They're good questions, but certainly not life's most important questions. And when I think of important questions, my mind goes to what I would submit to you this morning is incredibly important. Perhaps the most important. And maybe you'll agree with me in the importance level of this question. Maybe you will not. But nonetheless, I want to consider a question that King David asked. King David in Psalm 8 is reflecting upon the majesty of God in who he is and in all that he's done and in all of his creative work. And he asks what I would submit as one of the most foundational, fundamental questions for mankind. We read these words in Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Now that's a question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The importance of this question lies in the statement of acknowledgement of who God is prior to the question. The significance of the question, what is man that you are mindful of him, God, lies in the fact that David begins by saying, when I look at your heavens... Anybody comprehend heaven? He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, literally, God, the handiwork of your, your hand, you, you spoke in it, it came to be. The moon and the stars, which you have set in place. David is rightly recognizing the magnificent of the creator God of the universe. When I look at the stars, when I look at the moon, when I try to comprehend the heavens, I think of all of these things, God, that, that you have created that are a, a product of your handiwork. I'm simply left wondering, who am I that you even consider me? Because I don't compare to the stars. I don't compare to the, the moon, your heavens. And yet in all of this, God, in all of your greatness and your majesty, you're mindful of me. David asked this question, and I would submit to you this morning, that in asking the question, he's establishing for us an understanding when we ask, what is man that God is mindful of him? intrinsically the answer to that question is God is mindful of man because he is more important than the moon and the stars and the heavens 
in everything that God has created with his fingertips that are a work of his creative genius. As magnificent as those things are, it is not the most precious of all of God's creation. That title is reserved for man. So David, I want you to understand something. David is rightly in awe of God. I would submit that's one of the problems we have in our world and even in our churches today. We're not in awe of God. He's like one of us. He's cool with it. It's okay. It doesn't matter. We go back to the questions we began with. It's about what I think. It's about what I want. It's about how I feel. And God's cool with that because we're buddies. We're homies. God... Though he is a friend of sinners, we read in scriptures, though he is a good, good father, though he has given us an identity as his child, and we are defined by who he says he is, he is nonetheless God, who spoke into existence everything that exists. But he is mindful of man, because man is the only thing in all of creation that was made in the image of God. Thomas Carlyle, a 19th century philosopher, had this to say about God and his creative work. Through every star, through every grass blade, and most through every living soul, the glory of a present God still beams. Most through every living soul, the glory of God still beams. What Thomas Carlyle is recognizing and putting into words that we can understand is, we look, we look around and we say, well, look at all the stuff that's out there. The sun, the stars, the moon, the planet, the grass, the trees, all of this stuff. It has to speak to a reality that this has come from somewhere. But chief among the things that speak to this has come from somewhere is man. It's not the blades of the grass. It's not the magnificence of the sun and the radiance of the moon. It's man. And we've seen this passage of scripture recently together, just last week. But we read in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God's glory shines most through man because man alone was made in the image of God. And when I say man, that's humankind, human. Because man was made in the image of God. And here's why that matters. And here's the bottom line. God's image changes everything. Because without God's image, we have no more value or worth Then the grass that gets cut, then the weeds that get pulled, then the stars that shine at night, then the clouds that bring rain. But unlike all of those things, man is made in the image of God, and the image of God changes everything. Why is God mindful of man? Why does God care for man as David asked in amazement when considering the majesty of God? God cares for man because man was made in God's own image. And therefore, any question, any question about life and its purposes must include God. 
You cannot find the answers to the questions of life without God. And that's why we sing in a song. I see people searching for answers. They're searching far and wide. But they're searching for answers that only God provides. You cannot answer life's most pressing questions without the inclusion of God in the solution or in the answer. And to seek and and to try to answer any of the truly most pressing questions apart from God is going to leave you still searching, looking for more, looking for different, always continuing to look. And so we seek God as we ask life's most pressing questions because we are made in his image and of all things we are designed the most to bring him glory. So maybe instead of what do I want to do with my life, we ask questions like what most brings glory to God in our lives? What what do I most want to experience? How can the experiences of my life bring glory to God? How does the reality of being made in the image of God shape any of this? It should shape all of it. And that doesn't mean, listen, I want you to understand, I'm not saying that means to live our lives for the glory of God does not mean everybody goes to school to be a pastor or a missionary. It it might just mean that you rightly represent the one whose image you are made in when you're at work tomorrow. Or when you're in class tomorrow. Whatever it may be, the reality is every human being is made in the image of God. And the purpose and intent behind being made in the image of God is that your life would radiate the glory of God so that as as other people are asking life's most pressing questions, they would come to see and understand through you radiating God's glory that God is the answer. So we can't answer these questions without him. Bearing God's image is of great importance. And we must make it our quest or our aim to understand it as best as we can. And one thing that I found interesting this week is that in the ancient world, the idea of bearing one's image was similar to the idea of essence or the essence of something. Literally, the very core of that something. Well, if you know me very well, you know I like cologne. I like to smell nice. In fact, yesterday we were in Evansville, and I was at the store. I needed to buy a new pair of jeans. And before I buy my jeans, I was over there sniffing cologne. And I see, I don't know what I'm doing. I had the girls with me, too, and they're like, ooh, Dad, this one smells good. And that one smells, you know, I didn't end up buying any cologne because my wife came over. She's like, why are you looking at cologne? Because I like to smell good, honey. But I like cologne, and I like to have different colognes. Now, here's why I tell you about my obsession with cologne. Because cologne is made out of essence. So that bottle that you buy in the store, you bring home, it might be 1.7 ounces of something. It might be 2.5 ounces of something. But at the core of what that liquid in that bottle is, is a very strong odor or aroma. Probably it's better than an odor. (laughs) A strong aroma. I'm good. A very strong aroma. And so what happens is that essence is so strong. They can take tiny bits of that essence and dilute it with water and different kind of like alcohol words that are like super long and I don't even try to tackle them or whatever. They put them together and they mix it. And then that that essence can be sprayed in cologne form and it lasts 
and it carries, and it, and, it, and it goes with you. This is the idea of the essence. The essence of a scent is turned into a cologne so that when a person sprays that cologne, the smell of that essence goes forward with them. It's not left in the bathroom where they sprayed this cologne on. And this same idea existed in the ancient worlds dealing with idols. Most often when we think about idols, we think of like these little wooden statues, right? Now we know that it's not limited just to that, but that's actually what we're talking about here. So in the ancient world, they'd have these little like uh, wooden, wooden statues, these, these idols. And they didn't believe that these little idols had the same power as the deity that the idol represented. Deity is a word for God. So they didn't believe that this idol had the same power and authority as the deity it represented, but they believed that it was able to invoke the power of the deity because it was an an essence of the deity. That's why people would worship idols. In a similar way, we think of these little idols, we think of the essence of cologne. The work of God is to be carried out by those who carry his essence or image. We, as bearers of the image of God, that is mankind, are to be the essence of the goodness of God to those we come in contact with and to the world that we live around. But there's actually more to it. Because if we read in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, that's where we read Adam's, uh, it's a genealogy of Adam's descendants. and And it begins by telling us that his sons were made in his likeness. And likeness is a, is another word that carries this same idea with it. But Adam's sons, created in his likeness, are different than that of little statues of idols. And that they not only physically just sit and stand in place as a representation of the deity, but kids also care with, carry with them, in this case Adam's descendants, carried with them a likeness that, that looked and in a lot of ways acted like Adam. You see, this is an ability that a human being has that nothing else has. Right? Now listen. Not only do I look like my dad, and shamefully the older I get, the more I look like him, but I act like my dad. And it's my wife's favorite thing in the world when I act like my dad. And this carries on because if you know my dad, you know my dad is, well actually if you guys know my dad, you're probably like, does your dad even talk? Uh, because when he's around people, like he's super quiet. But when you get him at home, he's crazy. And my dad, he, he's got this cackle that he does. And guess what? I've got the same cackle. And I put it on a little bit because I know Jenna loves it. And, and so I put this cackle on a little bit. Now, here's the reason I tell you this story about me not only looking like my dad, but, but acting like my dad. Because not only am I like my dad, and not only do I act a lot like my dad, but unfortunately, my girls act a lot like me. Especially the little one. Have you guys ever heard JoJo <clears throat> cackle from a mile away? Because you can and she gets this, and, it, and I'm, it's my dad. It's my dad. It's me. It's her. The girls, by God's grace, they got the physical likeness of their mother, but they got the, the, the character likeness of their dad. So they act like me. But they bear my image. When you see my kids, or you hear my kids, rather, when you see them, you know they're hers. When you hear them, you know they're mine. Right? They bear our likeness. They bear our, our image. I want, to, I want to remind you that 
When we talk about being made in the image of God or bearing the likeness of someone, it, we're not saying that we become that person. Like, because we bear the image of God does not mean that we are little gods. It does not mean that we are working or striving to be like God <clears throat> in the sense that we become like him in all of his characteristics and all of his nature. Because we don't. Any more than my kids become me. They might act like me. In some ways, they might look like me. But my kids will never be me. They're them. Okay? And so it's important that we recognize being made in the image of God does not mean that one day we are going to be God. Scriptures do talk about if we're in Christ and we're made in the image of God and now we're in Christ, that Scripture, through the process of what the Bible calls sanctification, is growing us to be more like Jesus. That doesn't mean it's growing us to be Jesus. Okay? You guys tracking with me? And so we got to understand that the quest isn't to become little gods. But being made in the image of God does mean that we have something unique to us that nothing else has. And that's the ability to have spiritual fellowship with God. The one whose handiwork is the moon and the stars and the heavens that he has set in place. God has given mankind the ability to function with a conscience and according to reason and logic. The ability to be spiritually discerning. Plants and animals don't have this. Only human beings made in the image of God have this. Why? For the purpose of representing God as his image and likeness for the goal of bringing glory to him for who he is and for all that he has done. So what do we do with this? So what? All right, pastor, we're made in the image of God. What practical bearing does that have on my life? Like I'm trying to sort through this reality and I am asking these questions. I do want to know about life. And I do want to know all of these things you're touching on. But so what? I'm made in the image of God. What bearing does this have on my day-to-day life? And why does this image of God change everything? The simplest way to say this is this. It changes things because being made in the image of God automatically means that every human life has value and it has worth. And it's based solely upon the fact that life of humans is made in the image of God. Around our country and around the, in many cases, the world today has been labeled Sanctity of Life Sunday. Where we get in our pulpits and we open the word of God. And in short, we talk about why life matters. In, in recent years, it's been limited to the unborn life. But as I shared with Pastor Aaron this week, as I, I'm working through this and I'm looking in the Word and I'm, I'm, I'm working through it and I'm trying to make sense, and, and I thought, you know what? We have a problem in our world that's not limited to the unborn. We have a problem in our world that says we just simply don't value life of any shape and size of any age. And this is why the image of God changes everything. You see, we have sought to remove ourselves out from underneath the authority of God. But there are consequences of that. When God is no longer the authority, well, when people think God is no longer the authority, he is, whether they think it or not. 
When we strive to make God not the authority, the consequences are we have no barometer of truth anymore. Without God, there is no such thing as right and wrong. Do you understand me? Without God, there is no such thing as truth. And we're suffering the consequences of this reality. Because life has value and worth based upon the fact that it's made in the image of God, I want to give you a couple of applications of God's image changing everything and what that looks like in our lives. And first, that's in regards to God's image in the world around us. God's image in the world that we live in. Now, if the word of God is true, and you've heard me say before, you hear me say again, and I believe it is, then the hearts of God's people should be broken. Because we live in a world that just does whatever it wants when it comes to life. No value to it. It's no worth. You see, each and every individual is an equal representation of God's image and God's likeness. Let me repeat that. Every, excuse me, each and every individual is an equal representation of God's image and likeness. So I am not a greater representation of God's image and likeness than Aaron is or than my wife is. One of the men on our elder board is not a greater representation of the image of God than I am or than one of you may be. Furthermore, None of us are a greater representation of God's image than people we don't know that live in impoverished communities that, you know, we think about, I'm going to share in a minute, we're talking about Indianapolis. You know, we oftentimes think about like world missions and people on the other side of the world. Listen, you got to understand, it doesn't matter where these people are located, human beings of every size, shape, form, skin, color, demographic, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, are equally made in the image of God. There is no distinction between the young and the old, the big and the small, or the color of the skin. And each person, regardless of where they fit into the range of descriptors, uh, that's made equally in the image of God, is made equally in the image of God for the same purpose, to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. And because this is true, my heart hurts over the disdain that we as humans have for life in general. We just simply don't care about life. As of early December 2021, it was reported that at least a dozen American cities had set homicide records for the year. In early December, didn't even take all year, two of which were Indianapolis and Louisville. So that's that's kind of close to home. Set homicide records last year. Many of whom, by the way, only broke the record that they set the previous year. I don't even have to talk about the the senseless violence in Chicago, do I? Literally, like the homicide capital of the world. The growing rhetoric to devalue life is wreaking havoc in the streets of our country like no other time in history or at least going back to the 1960s. In America, there's also the fact 
the abortion of preborn babies was legalized in Roe versus Wade in 1973. And since that time, there have been roughly 65 million lives aborted. Now, one of the things that I want to say before I move forward is this. I make it my aim to say this anytime we talk about these forms of statistics. Because when I look in a room this size and this many people, I don't know everybody's past. I don't know what everybody's been through, but I want you to understand something. It does not matter what your past is, and it does not matter what you have been through. The grace of God is sufficient. You may be carrying a weight, but the grace of God is sufficient. So please know, when I share statistics or we look at things of this nature, and I'm not just talking about with babies, but, but in just these realities in general, we may be carrying things with us that, that people don't know. We've got to try to sort through and navigate. Please hear me when I tell you this morning, the grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God is sufficient. And it offers forgiveness, rest, and relief anyone who has had some form of interaction with these American statistics. There is no decision that has been made, no action that has been carried out that the grace of God is insufficient to atone for. And this is tied directly to the fact that human beings are made in the image of God. And it is the desire of God to redeem circumstances and individuals with any and all backgrounds and experiences. No matter our past, God's grace is sufficient to redeem it. But it isn't just America. It's completely devalued life, any and every kind. It's believed as of last year that there are approximately 2 million Uyghurs. These are Turkish, Muslim, Turkish Muslims who live in a province, province in the northwestern um, uh, portion of China. And as of last year, it was believed that approximately 2 million of them were being held in imprisonment camps. And they were being held in these imprisonment camps for various reasons, such as their age for being born in the 80s, their beliefs for praying, for using social media, for having too many children, and even for setting their clock for a different time zone than that of Beijing. I will not share with you this morning some of the things I read this week that the Uyghur people are experiencing in China. There's part of me that wonders if it's fit for a corporate audience. Certainly not one that could potentially have children in it. They're not just being kept in these camps. They're being tortured and abused and beaten and killed. In Niger, Africa, on separate occasions in the past week alone, numerous Nigerian Christians were killed, their villages were destroyed, their homes and their churches were burnt to the ground by radical militant groups. What is the point, Pastor? When people lose sight of who they are in light of who God is, the result will always be chaos. And if you don't believe me, go home today and read the book of Judges. And the book of Judges closes in chapter 21, verse 25, with this statement. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Where there is no recognition in our context of Jesus as the rightful king that he is, the one in whose image man has been made in, we simply do what is right in our own eyes. You want to kill? Kill. You want to steal? Steal. Do whatever you want. I mean, I know I'm not the only one who sees the skyrocketing crime rates in America. And I'm not just talking about homicide. I'm talking about in San Francisco, people have started leaving their car doors and trunks open with nothing in their car because people in broad daylight are just walking around. Pop, oh, hey, I want that. I'm going to have it. They're going in stores and just clearing out in broad daylight. In broad daylight, these, these crimes are being committed. And I have to be careful because I want to begin to tell you in a more, in a more, um, in a less general sense, the problem is everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. But if we take a, a little bit deeper look into the reality, it's because a lot of these places where crime is skyrocketing, it's run by people who have sought and fought and did everything that they could to abandon the reality of God. And now they're looking around saying, well, I don't know why people are getting killed and stuff's getting stole. And I'm not trying to be facetious. All those cities that defunded the police two years ago, guess what they all did last year? They brought back their police budget bigger than the one they cut. Why? Because when people do what is right in their own eyes, the results are always chaos. But see, the reality is, I want to submit to you, I want you to understand that if you know Christ, if you've trusted Christ for salvation, and you have a slimmer of an understanding of this reality of being made in God's image, as much as I want to be like, Dummies, you get what you deserve. They're made in God's image. Paul tells the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, talking to them as believers who once weren't believers, he said, before you were believers, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. These people are dead. They need to be made alive. You don't fix dead things. You bring them to life. Herein lies the reality of God's people radiating God's glory as bearers of his image. People need to see their need for Jesus. And when people who claim to know Jesus live as though they do not, they cannot be effective in a world that needs him. The world around us is crumbling. There's an element of that that that's what we expect to see happen. You read the word of God, you know this to be true. But that doesn't mean we just stand by waving our white flag, playing the piano on the ship of the Titanic while it goes down. No, we're trying to plug the hole on the ship. We want to see people saved. We want people to come to know and understand that even in their hurting and even in their pain and even in their brokenness, that the grace of God is sufficient to heal them because they're made in his image. They're made in his likeness. And that alone means that every life has value and worth. It's God's image in the world around us. What about God's image in our own lives? What about God's image in our own lives? We've established that man was made in the image of God, and along with all creation, the purpose of creation is to bring glory to God. 
And that's exactly how we functioned for a time. But everything changed. Shortly after the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, we're introduced, introduced to the great deceiver who deceives Eve and then Adam. And when they're deceived and they take of that fruit and they eat, sin entered into the world. And Paul tells the church at Rome that when sin came, death came with it. In that moment, the ability of man who bore the image of God and was a perfect right representation of God because he lived in a sinless world, this ability to represent God rightly was altered. In that moment, the quest of man went from being one that brings glory to God and to being God. The very thing the serpent told Eve in the garden was, you can eat of the fruit because when you do, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. It's the great lie from the beginning. You get to be like God, or you get to be your own God is really how we see it today. Ever since that day in the Garden of Eden, man's quest has been to represent his own image. Man's quest is to represent his own image. The problem with that is that that is not why you were made. You were not made to be your own representation of your own likeness and your own image. You were made to be a representation of God and his image. But in the state of fallenness because of sin, we cannot rightly represent God. Sin is the barrier that keeps mankind from rightly being a representation to and for God. And so God did the unthinkable. Picture the scene. God made everything perfect. He placed Adam and Eve in a garden to tend it. Told them they could have everything that existed. The only thing you can't have is the free, the free, the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So understand that before they ate that fruit, they had no concept of evil. Everything was perfect. That's the scene. But they take the fruit, they eat, sin enters into the world, death comes with sin, and it alters man's ability to be a right representation of the image of God. So God did the unthinkable, and he made it possible for man to be redeemed. To go from a state of not being able to rightly represent God's image to a state where you can rightly represent God's image. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my most favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 5. He says this in the end of the chapter. For our sake, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, the sinner, the one who took the fruit and ate and ushered sin and death into the world and altered everything, and we could no longer rightly relate to God, and we could no longer rightly represent God. Paul says, for your sake, the one who did that, he made him who knew no sin. He was per- Jesus was perfect. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Why? So that the sinful 
unable to relate to God and rightly represent God could become the righteousness of God. I want you to understand something. If you believe salvation or having a relationship with God is not about going to hell, you don't understand salvation. I'm not saying that being mean. I'm just simply saying, if your concept of Jesus dying on the cross so that you can uh, go to heaven instead of hell is that the extent of your interaction with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and faith with that and what that means, then you don't have a good picture. I'm not saying it's completely wrong. That's a reality. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be so that we might be the righteousness of God, so that we could be the righteousness of God declared righteous, meaning that we're going to go to heaven. But it wasn't just about going to heaven. It was about taking that broken image of sinful man and redeeming it for the purpose of being able to rightly represent God. And once a person is declared righteous, only when a person is declared righteous can they rightly represent God's righteousness to the world that desires to destroy his image. And so to the teen who feels rejection for whatever reason, you're made in the image of God, and that alone gives you value and worth. To the single parent who suffers under the weight of trying to navigate life alone, and sometimes you feel as though you're failing, you're made in the image of God, and that alone gives you value and worth. To the person who's struggling at work and questions about your job and ability to provide begin to surface. You're made in the image of God and that alone gives you value and worth. That intrinsic value is there. But in order to realize just how valuable that is and just how to be the representation of God that he desires you to be, you must be in relationship with Christ. You have value. You may not realize it, and you may not understand it because you're not in relationship with Christ, because you're still this, the, the alter, you're in the altered state. You can't rightly relate to God because of sin. But I want to remind you, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be the righteousness of God, so that we could recognize that value. And so when Paul's telling them this in 2 Corinthians 5 about becoming the righteousness of God, he tells them how it is that they do that. Because maybe that's the question this morning. Maybe the question isn't, what's my purpose? What are my goals? What do I want to experience? Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe as we look at the word of God and we talk through this week after week and we have conversations in church and outside of church, maybe the question is, how am I reconciled to God? The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. But pastor, you're telling me that Paul says right before that, so we implore you, be reconciled to God. That's the message that Paul has for the church at Corinth. Not try harder, not do better, not clean yourself up, not figure it out. The message is be reconciled to God. The idea of reconciliation is taking two parties that are at odds and bringing them together. Typically, two parties at odds are brought together, reconciled with a mediator. <clears throat> That's why you stay at odds, because you need a mediator. You get a mediator. Listen, the mediator is Jesus. 
when he hung on the cross and he bore the wrath of God. Literally, the sins of mankind were poured out upon the head of Christ, enabling, uniquely qualifying him to be the mediator. That was how the story went. But we knew it was true three days later. Because three days later, they went to the tomb to take Jesus out and bury him. And they said, he's not here. And the angel said, the one you look for ain't here. He did just what he told you he was going to do. He rose. He gone. That's the reality. And because he died and he rose, he's the mediator. He's the middleman between a holy, perfect, all-powerful, sovereign, creating God whose handiwork is the heavens and the moon and the stars and last but not least, mankind. And mankind, who in and of himself can do nothing to get to the perfect, sovereign, holy, creating God of the universe. And because that is how it's laid out, the plan of God before the foundation of the world was to give Jesus, to overcome death, to defeat the grave, and to demonstrate that he alone is the authority on the matter, that he alone is deserving of all of our awe and all of our wonder and all of our majesty and all of our desires to live for his glory. You see, we ask questions about life. You ask them apart from God, you can't get good answers. Have you been reconciled to God this morning? Not do you know some stuff, not can you answer some questions. Have you been reconciled to God this morning? If you've not been reconciled, you cannot rightly represent him to a world that desperately needs him. And furthermore, if you have not been reconciled to God, then you are desperately in need of being reconciled through faith in Christ today. If you've not been, you need to be. You can ask all the questions in the world you want. The only question you should be asking if you've not been reconciled to God is the question we saw over recent weeks that we see a number of times in the book of Acts. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Have you been reconciled to God? Man was made in the image of God for the glory of God, but sin changed all of that. And each of us have been impacted by the reality of sin and it needs to be accounted for so that we might become the righteousness of God and represent him as we were intended to do. The image of God changes everything. And when we embrace it, it changes us too. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege we have, unique to mankind, to be made in your image. To share a likeness with you unlike anything else. I pray, God, that you'd help us to see the reality of that image and likeness. It's to be a representation to the world that we live in. That those who don't understand or don't know the the reality of being separated from you because of sin, that they don't know that they need to be reconciled. I pray, God, that you would help those of us who have been to live in such a way that others might see their need to be also. I want to pray this morning, God, as we finish for the individual today who may be struggling, who may be carrying the weight of the world and we don't even know it. And the serious issues of life and the serious pressures of the world that we 
live in are setting in and they begin thinking unthinkable things and not knowing how they're going to proceed and how they may move forward. I pray today, God, for that individual that you would just stir their heart in a special way. They would know today that they're made in your image, God, and that that alone gives worth and value. It changes our outlook on life. It changes everything. And so, God, I pray for the one this morning who may be suffering under the weight of, a past, of the past. Pray, God, that you would bring rest and you would bring healing. God, that you would do your work and your time for your glory. And I pray that you would help those of us who know Christ to embrace this role of being an ambassador for you, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And in that role of ambassador, we're imploring those we come in contact with to be reconciled to God. To see the rightful reason and purpose of their life and being made in the image of God is for the glory of God. Father, I pray that you would break the hearts of your people. As we look around the world, we see it's, just, it's broken and it's lost and it's dead. But God, your grace and your mercy are sufficient. And so we pray that you would work today to the ends that it's necessary in whatever circumstance and situation. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.